chapter 18. When David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan and David became bound together in close friendship. Jonathan loved David as much as he did his own life. And Saul retained David on that day and did not allow him to return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David, for he loved him as much as he did his own life. And Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with the rest of his gear, including his sword, his bow, and even his belt. Why did Jonathan and David become such close friends? They both trust God. They both act when God tells them to act. And they both give the glory to God. And there's not many people in Israel right now that Jonathan can feel close to. Certainly not his dad. And they become close. Now, some translations said they loved each other, but that word love is the word chesed, which is more of a covenant-like love. I'm not saying there's no emotions involved, but the emphasis is not on this like emotional love for each other or best buds love with, for each other. The emphasis is on a covenant love with each other. They're making a covenant with each other where they're going to stick by each other's sides and become incredibly dependent on each other and look out for each other. Then it says that Jonathan did what for David? Gave him his robe? What is a robe symbolic of? Your authority, your status. He's giving a sword. Remember, there's not a whole lot of swords in Israel right now. That will begin to change with David. So there's only two swords. And he's giving him his belt. And your belt is kind of like your family crest. What has Jonathan just done? He's handed his kingship over to David. He acknowledges that he will not be king. And that David is Yahweh's anointed. Jonathan, now, has anybody publicly announced yet, other than just few elders in Bethlehem, that David is the next king? In fact, when we keep going on, we'll get the idea that Saul doesn't even know this yet. Yet Jonathan is so in tune to God (coughs) that he immediately recognizes that this is the king that God has been talking about. Because there's not a whole lot of other people like that out there. And what's so amazing about Jonathan is that he's so trusting and obedient to God that he hands his kingship over willingly rather than being bitter and angry. He, in a human sense, has every right to be angry and to hold on to that kingship. He has every right to say, How dare you, God? You disqualified me because of my dad? I'm not like my dad. That's not fair. You can't do that because that's what we say, right? You can't do that to me. I wasn't the one who did it. That's not fair. My daughters say that all the time. <laughs> that's how we immediately react. I'm not the one who did it. I shouldn't be punished. I shouldn't be missing out. I, why are you taking the reward away from me? I'm not the... You know, what kind of a God are you? I'm going to hold on to this kingship. This is my right by the law of the land. And yet he doesn't. I think by far this is one of the most amazing things in Jonathan's character. Way more amazing than one or two, our entire army, God can give us the victory. The ability to literally give up that much power and just trust God. And then not just that, surrender it to the next guy and say you can have all the power that technically is rightfully mine. How often do you see that? 
where people just willingly stepped down because they've been wronged and they hand it over to the next guy in a willingly way and they become covenantal friends with them. That by far is one of the most amazing things about Jonathan's character. And it's all that, once again, it's like, wow, God, shouldn't he have more of a role in the kingdom? But he did. It's just, it's not completely revealed here, and I'm sure God was using him. But we don't, our ways are not his ways. Well, his ways are not our ways. There's so much more going on. That's amazing character. Now, also understand, too, that this isn't like a, we're the same age best friends. David's around 13, 14 years old, and Jonathan's probably in his 30s by now. So this is more of like a, um, a big brother little brother kind of a scenario or a mentor in the church taking a young youth under his belt and like discipling him so this isn't like best friends in equal sense this is a a father-son kind of relationship that we have going on here now granted david's probably maybe years gone by between chapter six and chapter seven a couple years have gone by between chapter 18 so David might be more like 16, 17 years old by now. We don't know exactly how much, but we know it's not like decades are going by. Verse 5, on every mission on which Saul sent him, David achieved success. So Saul appointed him over the men of war, and this pleased not only all the army, but also Saul's servants. Now knowing Saul's character, he definitely doesn't know that David is the next king. David keeps getting promoted in the army. He keeps sending on the things. And everywhere he goes, what happens? He's successful. And you know right now, because the judge is the same, the only way he can be successful is if Yahweh's with him and he's trusting in Yahweh, right? And that automatically tells you that chapter 17 wasn't just lip service. David is legitimately a godly man who trusts in God. At the same time, he's got a pride issue. And he is doing, he's not even king yet. And he's doing exactly what Saul should have been doing, delivering Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Verse 6, when the men arrived after David returned from striking down the Philistines, the women from all the cities of Israel came out singing and dancing to meet King Saul. And they were happy as they played their tambourines, three-stringed instruments. The women were playing the music, saying, And Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Now, we don't know exactly what numbers are there. The point is it could actually be that um, they're very close. But the main point is that they're either, either giving David more credit or the equal credit to Saul. We don't know how much time has gone by. But enough time has gone by that David has defeated the enemy so many times that they can now actually begin to write songs about him. They're singing their praises. This made Saul very angry. The statement displeased him. Or in some translations, it galled him. Like a knife going in your side and just twisting. They have attributed David with tens of thousands, but to me they've attributed only thousands. Why does he lack what does he lack except the kingdom? So Saul was keeping his eye on David from that day forward. At that point, Saul doesn't like him. In the beginning, Saul just sees him as a magic like rabbit's foot. Let's, we're going to go into battle. Let's rub the kid's head, and that will give us good luck, and we'll go out there. 
And every time we go out to battle, I've already stole credit from my son's victories on multiple times. I'll just steal credit from his. He's a young boy. Nobody's thinking about that. And victory, 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 victory. But over time, David gets older and older and older. And it becomes obvious to anybody watching that David's really the one doing it. Just like Jonathan's soldiers realize, you can't kill Jonathan. He's the one who gave his victory, not you, Saul. And over time, things begin to change from David just being this armor bearer who has become like a lucky charm to Saul, and now he's standing out and becoming the more prominent person. And everybody's taking notice, and at this point, now he becomes jealous. Because now he can't see David under him. David's beginning to surpass him. And Jonathan sees this as God's will and is okay with it. Saul becomes jealous and begins to watch David closely. And then he's going to begin to try to kill David as a result. Because now he may not know whether this is the guy that God's picked or not, but he does see David as a threat to the throne. And that's important. The next day an evil spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he prophesied with his house. Now David was playing. Now prophesy means that God is using him. He's talking, saying things, but we don't know what he's saying within his house. Now David was playing the lyre that day, and there was a spear in Saul's hand, and Saul threw the spear, thinking, I will nail David to the wall, but David escaped from him on two different occasions. At this point, things have changed now. <laughs> You've got to picture this. It says that Saul was sitting there with a spear in his hand as he's listening to classical music. <laughs> Think about it. This is like some guy sitting in his living room listening to classical music with a handgun just kind of tossing it back and forth in his hand. You know, like, those two things don't go together. And who does that? But this spear is tormenting him. And he's become, becoming paranoid and schizophrenic even to a certain point. We're going to see that later. And, 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 and there's a sense that there's ready. And then it says he tried to kill him twice because it said David eluded him twice. Which is another picture, too, because it doesn't have just a spear. It's like he's just sitting there on the throne with, like, this magazine of spears. You just grab it, throw it, grab it, like Legolas. just never runs out. There's an idea that Saul is becoming the paranoid guy. He's the guy who's becoming paranoid and angry and tormented. He's beginning to stockpile weapons next to him because that's what paranoid people do. And he's now ready for any attack on David necessarily. And the things are beginning to turn here. So Saul feared David because Yahweh was with him, but he had departed from Saul. Now he's beginning to realize something. God is with David and he's not with him. And that's increased an extra level of fear. It's not just the people like him. It's also that God has favored him over him. And that really begins. Before, when the people liked David more than him, he was angry. But when God likes David more, for lack of a better word, he is now afraid. Now David achieved success in all that he did. Notice how many times the narrator keeps saying that. Because Yahweh was with him. It's been a long time since we've seen that, other than Saul, Samuel, who was only a couple chapters. The narrator is making it very clear why he's successful. But all of Israel and Judah loved David, for he was the one leading them into battle. Now, all of Israel and Judah love him now. That's going to change, though. 
Then Saul said to David, Here's my oldest daughter, Merib. I want to give her to you in marriage. Only be a brave warrior for me and fight the battles of Yahweh. For Saul thought, he's, There's no need for me to raise my hand against them. Let it be the hand of the Philistines. Has Saul kept his deal in marrying his daughter off to David? No. Years have gone by. Now, did he renege on his promise because he doesn't like David? Or did he think, There's no way I'm going to give my daughter to this boy? I'll wait till he's a little older. We don't know why. But now, for whatever reason, Saul's like, oh, yeah, the marriage thing. Oh, yeah, that will get David killed. Now, why is getting married to a woman going to kill you? (laughs) Said that way intentionally. It's not true. But for David, what does he say specifically here that David will what? He will be on the battlefield. Well, isn't David already on the battlefield? By being brought into the king's family now he's going to be given even more ranks in the battle and he's going to go out into even more battles than before and it's going to put him at risk greater and greater and greater in fact there's also an idea here too is like when people get married god actually forbids people who are married to go into battle for certain, for at least a year one so that they can at least have some kind of relationship with each other until before that guy dies, if he's going to die in war, because the chances are really great, to establish his household, to to connect them in such a way, because if you get married and just leave, then she's going to be set up for temptation because she's not really completely connected to you yet. If she's really connected to you after a year, she's less likely to be unfaithful. Three, to establish those roots. And people have more of a reason to fight in battle when they're fighting for something else. And if his heart is more connected to her, he's more likely to fight even harder for Yahweh. And the other thing, too, is sometimes you just become stupid when you're in love with people, right? And you're just kind of oblivious and not aware, and you're just kind of out in the battlefield, and you're like, oh, my, my bride, oh, da, da. bam, an arrow hits you, and you're dead, okay? Have you ever noticed that? Pay attention to the movies. Every single time you're in war, the guy who pulls the picture out of his girlfriend and says, that's my girl. He always dies. Like the very next scene. Every time I watch a movie and he reaches his pocket, I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't do it. Don't do it. If you want to survive war and come home, you keep the pictures of your loved ones in your pockets. In fact, just don't bring them. Every single time in movies. It's like Star Trek too. If you've got a red shirt, you're going to die first too. Just no red shirts, no pictures of loved ones. You'll come home alive. Better alive without a picture than a picture in debt. But this is the idea. The distraction is going to be there. So he's trying to get David out. Now David said to Saul, who am I? Who are the relatives of my clan or my father in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? When the time came for Merib, his Saul, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was instead given to marriage to Adriel, who was from Mahalah. So David is humble. I'm an insignificant person from an insignificant family. I'm not worthy to be in the king's palace and his family. No, 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 no. You're like, okay, that's really humble. But didn't he want the reward previously? Well, maybe he just wanted the no taxes and lots of money. Okay, this is good of David. He's, he's humble. He doesn't feel like he's worthy to be in there. Now, Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. She loved David. But it doesn't say that David loved her. I'm not saying he didn't. We just don't know. But Michael loved David. And she had a poster of David on her bedroom wall. 
And, she t- and then when this was told to Saul about this, it pleased him. So now this is going to work. Because if you have a girl like fawning after you, you're probably less likely to say, oh, who am I? Okay, that's hard to resist. Saul said, I will give her to him so that you may become a snare to him and the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Saul said to David today, and the second time you become my son-in-law. Now, the other thing that David Saul is doing here is if he just outright kills David, how's the people going to feel about him? That's not going to go over well for him. But if he dies in battle, then you'd be like, oh, that's so sad. Our great warrior that everybody loves just died. And then he looks good. Then David responded again, I am not worthy. Verse 24, when Saul's servant reported what David had said, Saul replied, here is what you should say to David. Now this time, David, when he resists, said, I did not have, I am poor. Now why would David emphasize the poorness? Now he said, I'm not worthy. Who am I to be the palace? But I am poor. Why would he emphasize poverty? Dowry. You, the man, has to give a dowry to the bride's father when you get married. What dowry does a poor boy give to a king? And now you begin to realize, oh, is David really humble? Or is it just because he doesn't think he can afford the dowry? And even Saul picks up on that new information. Because Saul then says, oh, okay, this time go tell him, I don't want any bride's price. He gets what David's saying. Tell him that all I want is the foreskin of a hundred Philistines. You're like, whoa, that's kind of an interesting, weird one. Why? The Philistine, there's one thing the Philistines have that Israelites don't have, and that's foreskin. <laughs> because the Israelites are all circumcised, and the Philistines are not. And there's only one way to really prove that you've killed Philistines than to bring back the one thing that they have and nobody else does. Now you're like, that's really awkward. Who kills a Philistine and then like goes through the process of doing that on a dead body and bringing it back? And the answer is Canaanites. You would say, even I don't care how Canaanite you are, that's still <laughs> awkward and weird. But remember this. There are a lot of things that you look at that culture and you're like, oh, that's kind of awkward and like sexually uncomfortable, right? But there are a lot of things that if they came to our culture, they would be horrified and feel very awkward of what they're seeing. And the reality is every culture's got those things that they're just like, what? That's not that big of a deal. In fact, we make jokes about it all the time in our plays and movies. And then other things that they're horrified. And it might be different in other cultures. And there's a lot, and believe me, I would bet my life on this, that if you put up the things that they're horrified about the way that we deal with sex and the things that we're horrified by the way, they would have a lot more things to be horrified about. At least the Israelites. Not the Canaanites, but the Israelites. You just have to realize the reality is, whatever reason, in this culture at that time period, over hundreds of years, they come to the point where that's not really uncomfortable and awkward for them. But the other thing is that this is what Canaanites do. And Saul's acting like a Canaanite. But then what does David say? All right, now I'll be the king's son. Because now the price is right. It wasn't that he was humble. 
It was that he couldn't afford the price. And now that the price has been killing other people, David's like, I can do that. And you realize that this has nothing to do with humility. This has everything to do with the price being right. How do you know this is a pride issue? Because when David goes out, he doesn't get 100, he gets 200. Now, who brings back more than what somebody has required? But those 200s are trophies. And he throws that bag in front of Saul, which that would be awkward. (laughs) And now it's a pride issue. It's kind of like, I bet you, there's no way you could run like 20 miles in this certain amount of time. And you're like, I'll show you. I'll go out and do it in half the time. And it's exactly what David has done. You ask for 100, I'll show you. I'll get 200 Philistines and I'll kill them. That's pride. And now you're just realizing which one is David becoming? The prideful or the trusting God? It's kind of hard to still tell right now. But he's really equally prideful and and I don't mean equal like literally scientifically equal. There's no way of knowing that. But just in measure. So he becomes a son-in-law and now he's in the palace. Now this doesn't work out for Saul. Because now he's actually promoted David to a higher position because he thought David was going to die and never get that promotion. And now he didn't die because God is with him. Even though David is prideful, God is still with him. And now Saul's stuck. When Saul realized that Yahweh was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became even more afraid of Saul and continued to be at odds with David from that point on. And the leaders of the Philistines would march out, and as often as they did so, David achieved more success than all Saul's servants. His name was held in high, high esteem. Who is David? A man after God's own heart who's got a lot of pride. And he wants the rewards, he wants the recognition, and he doesn't pass up a chance to let everybody know how awesome he is. Now, he might be doing it in a subtle kind of way. He not, may not be that arrogant in your face showing off guy, but he doesn't want to be noticed. And he wants the rewards and he wants the attention. If you do any kind of psychological study, you probably know that there's probably a deeper issue going on there, why he wants all that, da 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 But that's not the point the Bible's making. That's not the point. The point is the reality, he wants attention. He wants the rewards. He wants the recognition. But at the same time, he is truly different. And he is a man after God's own heart. And he is trusting God. And, he, and God's rewarding him with his success in a way that God hasn't rewarded other people. And, and Saul was prideful. Saul built a monument to himself. Saul took credit from his son. Saul went out and bragged about himself. Yet he wasn't called a man because of his own heart, and God didn't give him success. David is prideful. He's taking for credit for things. He's showing off. Yet God calls him a man of God's own heart. And right now, you're not really seeing a big difference here, except for that David's got better theology than Saul. And David actually trusts in God. But is that really enough? And as we keep going and watch David do more and more and more things, and you begin to realize that this guy's really not that great of a guy, the question becomes, why is God calling him a man of God's own heart? And that's very important. Don't don't gloss over this. 
and miss all these little details. Because the narrator's trying to make an argument. If you see David as a really great guy and you miss all the stuff because you have a hard time believing that he could actually do this and you just blank it out because God said this, then you're missing a very important thing about God's character. And you're missing a very important thing of what makes somebody a man or a woman after God's own heart. And here's the problem. If you miss the point that the narrator is going to be making, then you fall into legalism and behaviorism. And you become legalistically and behavior-oriented in your own life, thinking that that's what's important, and you begin to judge or condemn or approve of people based on legalism and behavior in their life. And right now you're going to realize that David doesn't fit legalism or behaviorism. And yet God calls him and God's own heart. And you have to see this paradox, so to speak. Because one, that's you and me. And two, because then that gets you to the real heart of what God really is looking for. And what really gets you into the kingdom of God. And it's not behaviorism, and it's not legalism. It's someone who has a heart after God's own heart. And the question is, what does that look like? And that's what the narrator is going to begin to unpack for you. And if you can get, I think David and Saul is one of the most important messages in the entire Bible that can really protect you from judging your own life and other people based on behaviorism. Because when you realize that what David is and what God says about him, it throws out all your surface behavior judgments and approvals of people right out the window. And I think that's what we're going to begin to see. Does that make sense? Right now, you just need to see the two natures. In the next weeks, we're going to see what really makes them different and how are they the same.